0: When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today, we're speaking with Florence-based life coach, Catherine Alvarado about her experience with the intersection between family and business as she grew up working for her family's Austin-based catering company. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners with your name, where you're from, and what you do?
1: Yeah, I am Catherine Alvarado. I actually live in Florence, Texas originally from Austin, one of the unicorns that is from Austin. And now I work a or own a generational business and life coaching company. Prior to that, I ran my family's multi-generation catering company in Austin.
0: Can you tell me a bit more about your family's business?
1: We actually started as Freddie's Cafe on Sixth Street back when Sixth Street wasn't Sixth Street in 1952. My grandfather married my grandmother, um, Rosalie Jabour, which is an old Lebanese family here in Austin, and started the business. And from that, it kind of grew. In the late mid-70s, my dad came fully into the business after graduating pharmacy school from the University of Texas. You kind of get sucked into that threshold of a biz- being in a business, and he expanded we did catering but he expanded that because there wasn't business on sixth street back in the 70s and he from the set from there dad purchased a piece of property off of lamar 6406 north lamar which was right next to threadgills on lamar it's a little house so all of the 80s we worked out of that facility he grew the business tons of business at the university of texas Tons of business at the Capitol, of course, weddings and a lot of other social events. In the early 90s, we sold that property and they moved up to Kramer Lane where the property is still, and the current owners of Daggers have um, still have that property. Through the 90s, Dad worked the business. He put us all through college. We all have our degrees from various Texas universities. I was the only fool. (laughs) <laughs> that came into the to the family business. No, I have three brothers, and I was the one that wanted to come into the family business. So in 2001, literally two weeks after graduating from college, I went into the family business full time. Now, when you work in a family business, you're in it since conception. There's no ifs, ands, ands and buts about it. If, if daddy tells you to show up, you show up. So I was doing events at Camp Mabry when I was you know four, five, six, seven, eight, because that was how you spent time with the family. I was running full weddings by the time I was 16. So I didn't come into the business with this eye of, oh, I don't know what it is. I knew exactly what it was. 2001 to 2012, I worked side by side with my dad. And I learned every aspect of the business. And those weren't easy years. Those were my 20s. My dad wanted to make sure that I knew every aspect of the business. And I worked 80 hours a week in the office, in the kitchen, in the warehouse, on events, everything that needed to encompass a business, I had to learn in those 10 years. Because unfortunately, my dad passed away in 2012. In 2012, now I was the only person responsible for the business. My mom worked in the business. My mom did things, but I was the sole person responsible for executing the daily stuff in the business. And that was hard for me. Fast forward 2017 my mom passed away of pancreatic cancer and uh, I was like okay what's next prior to mom passing away I made a decision I spoke to her about about selling the business and I sold the business not because there was a need for me not wanting to do it because I love catering catering is not for the faint of heart catering is in your soul either you love it or you hate it there's no in between the problem was I had a muscular disorder and the physical part of catering, I couldn't do anymore. Even though I had great a great team of people who handled a lot of the physical stuff, there are times that you, as an owner, you have to step up and you have to do things. And my body just couldn't do any do that anymore. So in 2020, I put the business up on the market in January. Well, we all know it happened in March of 2020. I decided to pull the business off the market because nobody wants to buy a business that just lost a million dollars in a month. I decided to let's reboot, let's rethink, everything should smooth out. We had a good full year in 2021, a business kind of back to normal, and I put back to normal in quotes because it really wasn't fully back to normal, but it was back on the pace. And then in 2022, uh, May of 2022, I put the business back on the market and we sold it in September of 2022. So that's where my my business time ended at Daggers, but it also gave me the time to rethink what I want to do, how I can help other business owners not have to go through all the troubles I had in the 20s and my 30s, struggling to find my identity, struggling to find the balance between personal life and business life, everything that it entails.
0: Can you talk a bit more about when you were younger, you know, when you were four or five helping out with the business? What was it like to grow up with your family so tied to business and your family interactions so tied to business?
1: As a youngster, as a baby, you don't know any different. You just think you're spending time with the family. So, you know, going to Camp Mabry on a Sunday and feeding the reservist, that was just spending time with the family. You put the pie out and daddy, and at that time, my grandfather was still alive, Daddy, my gento, my, my grandfather. We were there to serve people and serve the public, right? When we did Texas Longhorn Band Camp and we were filling up iced tea glasses and we just thought it was fun. It didn't click till you were like 14 or 15 that you were working for free <laughs> and that you needed something out of it because you wanted to go spend time with your family instead of with your friends instead of your family. So in that moment is when you start negotiating with your father. Hey, I want to get paid X amount to do this job. Um, He kindly reminded me that we, we paid for certain things and we got a car, we had to pay for gas and all these other things that, you know, we forget as teenagers, right? So it was great as a kiddo because you didn't know any different. It was just part of being in the family. As you grow up and hit your teenage years, you don't want to do that because you want to be independent. You want you don't want your dad calling you saying you have to do this because XYZ person didn't show up to the event, so now you have to go to the event. Or they forgot water goblets, so now you have to go to the um, warehouse, get 100 water goblets, and take them all the way to up 620 and 2222. Which was a long way out there back in the day. It's not like it's all closed in now. It was it was out there, <laughs> so it was di- it was a different time. But you you didn't know any different. It was being with family. As you went into adulthood, it, it changed obviously because you're trying to find be independent, be your own person, find your own identity.
0: Looking back on that childhood experience, now that you do know better? Do you feel that you were maybe robbed of a quote-unquote normal childhood?
1: Absolutely not. I would would give back those times of spending with my mom, my dad, my grandfather. Um, If I could have that back, I would absolutely get that back. Because even though we were quote-unquote working, that's how we did fun things. Even my eight-year-old, he's nine now, but going in the business, he understood that to do the things we wanted to do as a family. We worked really hard in other areas and it taught me that work ethic. It taught me that you show up no matter what. It taught me that when people don't show up, what happens? It it taught a lot, a lot, lot of life lessons for me that I would love to pass on to my children and to, to, they hopefully pass on to their children.
0: Why did you want to go into the family business in the first place?
1: I love catering. I mean, even though I tried to run for it for a long time, I realized how much I loved it. There's nothing boring about owning a catering business. There is always a disaster waiting around the corner, (laughs) you know, whether it be from a client, whether it be in the kitchen, whether it be literally the building burning down. There is always something happening in a problem that you have to solve. And I love that I had to solve a problem every day. It can be a minute problem. It could be a large problem. But you're always moving. You're always figuring out the next thing. It Catering is not boring. Also, I was a daddy's girl. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I was a daddy's girl. And to me, there was nothing better than working with my dad. My dad was a very educated man who ended up being a caterer going into the family business. My dad had a degree in chemistry from Southwest Texas State University, Had a degree in education. He did teach school at Reagan High School back in the early 70s. He had a degree in pharmacy from the University of Texas, which he kept his pharmacy license active all those years. When he was building up the business, he would work late night shifts at MD Pharmacy, which was at Lavaca and 15th. Uh, now it's, I think it's at Hampton Inn now, <laughs> but right next to the Scottish Rite Theater. And he would work nights there to help pay off debt, to help continue the business and run the family business. So dad really sacrificed a lot to ensure that the business continued, but his passion was pharmacy. His passion was actually, he wanted to be a doctor. He want, He got accepted to medical school, but he took care of his family. That was his number one obligation in his mind.
0: He sounds like a super, super hard worker.
1: He will. He was the best. He. It's. It's living in his shadow can be hard, but it. I learned not to do that, and those were expectations that were put on me by the world. After he passed away, that I had to learn to work through.
0: Can you talk about how you worked through that and came to not feel like you were living in his shadow or had to have certain expectations for yourself?
1: Absolutely. So my, one of my favorite stories. Is like three months right before my birthday after dad passed away. Dad passed away in May of 2012. I had a friend Courtney invite me to this wine tasting. And by no means <laughs> was it a wine tasting. Yes, there was wine in the beginning, but then it was like a kumbaya. Every lady sit in a circle. Let's meditate. Let's talk about it. I'm like, what in God's name did you bring me to, Courtney? This is not my thing. You know, I'm not a share my feelings type of girl. i was stuck and i wasn't gonna leave because i wasn't gonna embarrass courtney she invited me to this and we sit down and the first thing that happens is let's bet it let's take a few seconds and breathe and meditate and i'm like what (laughs) what do you want me to do so i close my i play along i close my eyes and i really mean i because i kept one eye open to make sure everybody else was breathing. And then about halfway through the exercise, I'm like, okay, let's let's do what needs to be done. I close my eyes, and I, I breathe. And there was a whole like sharing session after that. And they're like, okay, now it's time to write in our journals. And I was like, write in our journals? Who are you people? <laughs> Which is funny now because I'm a life coach now, right? Write in your journals. And I was like, okay, what am I going to write about there? Write about. And in that moment, it, it came easier than I thought it would. Because I asked myself a question in that journal. Who was I if I wasn't Albert Dagger's daughter? 32 years old, I didn't know who I was because all of my 20s, I was married. I worked the business. That's all I did. And I had expectations put on me by the world. I literally had people say, you better do what your dad expects you to do. I had people saying, well, your dad wouldn't do it this way. Then I had the family saying, you're not dad. So in that question, I started analyzing who I was, and it took a long time. I'm still figuring out. I mean, you're always figuring out who you are. But I started asking questions, and the first thing I did was ask my staff, my poor staff at Daggers, what is your impression of me? What are the real truths of me? And I go, I want to hear it. If you ever read the book, Good to Great, it talks about the brutal truth. And I'm like, I have to hear this. Oh, my God, did I not have to hear that? (laughs) But it, it was good because it made me stand back and analyze how I was managing who I was, how I was trying to be, quote, unquote, a man in this business world. And by being tough, by being assertive, it was coming across in a certain way. And I needed to be me. I still can be assertive. I can still run my business. I can still but be who I am in that. And so that that was the first step. And then I just kept on analyzing myself daily. I had, There were days that I failed epically. And there's days that I had success. I always say the best thing about me is I'm black and white. And there's no gray area. And then the worst thing about me is I'm black and white. And there's no gray area. If you know that about yourself, then you can start looking at people's expressions when you're black and white and there's no gray area. Did I offend? If I offended, how can I apologize right away, etc. So that was the step of finding who I was. And then learning to say no, setting parameters, doing things, finding time for myself, taking Sundays off. Like we never at Daggers ever had a day off. Sunday was my day. Like, don't call me unless the building's burning down. So finding that time was important to me and finding myself.
0: Do you have a favorite memory from the catering business with your dad? Like, maybe an experience that y'all shared together?
1: Well, my dad was diabetic, and I watched every morsel that went into his mouth. Like, I got, he, he loved cookies, he loved sweets, and it's easy when you're a catering business and you're baking cookies fresh in the morning for whatever event, to just grab a cookie right off the rack, right? One morning, my husband and I walk into Dagger. So you walk into, there's the front foyer, then there's a door that goes into my dad's office. From that door, there's another door with a glass window that goes into the kitchen. My husband's in front of me. My dad's about to walk in the door, but he has a cookie in his mouth. And my husband waves him off, like, don't come in. Like, Catherine's right behind me. And he literally throws the cookie across the kitchen, wipes off his shirt, walks into the room says, Hey, baby, what you doing? How's it going? And I look at him, and I can tell he's lying about something, that he did something wrong. And I said, Hey, Dad, you missed some chocolate right there on on the end of your lips. And he's like, I won't say what exactly he said. But he's like, man, I can't get away with anything here. It's my business. Why can't I eat a cookie? So, you know, those interactions, those are the fun interactions. But there were a lot of bad ones too. Working with your dad isn't great. He's He was, when I say trying to make me a man, he thought that I needed to be tough and he was tough on me. And he used to tell me, there's no crying in business. I'm not your dad in these walls. So those were the the bad part is trying to find that balance between the father daughter relationship and the business relationship.
0: How did you attempt or hopefully succeed in finding the balance between father daughter and basically business partners or coworkers?
1: Honestly, I don't think we ever did. We struggled for it. We had a, a lot of discourse uh, a few years before he passed away on what was next for us. And, you know, he had his ideas for the business. I had my ideas for the business and 99% of those ideas were exactly the same. It was that 1% that we just, he, he didn't want to let go yet. He couldn't let go yet. And until he got really sick, that last six months of his life is the only, he had no choice but to let go. So we never really, we, we had that daughter, the father daughter relationship back because I took care of him. I made, I was his baby girl. I had, I made sure I knew his habits. I knew what he wanted to eat. I knew how he wanted to eat. I knew he wanted to eat whatever XYZ. I knew when he needed a nap, etc. cetera. So that was there. But one of his, some of his last words to my mom was, I hope I prepared Catherine enough. And for that to be his last worries on his deathbed is sad is that did I prepare my daughter enough to take care of the family business, to take care of everybody? He didn't want to burden me with these things. And that's why he was hard on me because he he knew in order for me to do that, I needed to create some toughness. I needed to be that M&M, hard on the outside, soft on the inside. And I couldn't melt. I had to hold it together. Because of that, I made sure that I wasn't that to anybody else in the future. And that's who am I if I'm not Albert Dagger's daughter. I am Albert Dagger's daughter. I can still do all these things without discourse and still honor his legacy, still honor the memory, still honor the business without creating confrontation.
0: That's really incredible that that you were able to find that balance and overcome what sounds like a lot of pressure.
1: It's a, it's a lot of pressure. It's expectations. Now you to say failure is not an option. It's not an option for us. So when you can't fail, what else is there to do? You just kind of push it down. You cry on the way home. You don't let people see you cry in front of them because they don't want to follow a crier. They want somebody's going to lead them. As a woman, it's hard. It's hard to not to turn off the woman, the feminine part of you. The part that cries at, in the movies, right? The person that cries because somebody said something wrong to you because you truly are a sensitive soul. But you can't let the world see that you're a sensitive soul when you own a business. Or, or that's what I thought. And it's not true. You honestly, if when people see you, and see your fallacies and you, and you own your fallacies, they do more for you. They work harder for you because you've shown them that you're in it too, that you are human, that you will, you will cry at a sharp commercial, you know, whatever it is, they, they see you.
0: I think that's so important for women to realize and remember that you can be tough, you can be a business owner, you can be a leader while still retaining your feminine qualities because they're not bad even though the world usually or sometimes will make you think that those things are bad or weak.
1: Absolutely. And as women, we can use it to our advantage. As business owners, we can use it to our advantage. That I'll tell you when that moment came for me. It literally came for me when one of my young ladies who worked for me, Rosalie, I had my at the time my son was 3 or 4. And she goes, Catherine, why can't you speak to me the way you speak to Gus? And I was like, what are you talking about? Because you're super soft with Gus and you're loving with Gus. But with me, you're sharp and you're direct and you're this and you're that. Like, oh he's my baby boy. I'm going to whatever Gus wants, Gus gets, right? And he, she's like, yes, but if you could just take some of that and speak to us that way. Can you imagine the reaction you would get? If you're getting that from Gus, you'd probably get that from us. And I sat on that and I was like, you know, you're right. I'm not going to talk to you like a child, but I'm going to talk to you with love and kindness in my voice.
0: Why did you decide to sell the business?
1: So when dad passed away, there was a moment where I said, I am not going to be dead at 64. This business is not going to kill me. I went from working on events, being physical, and to having to sit in a chair, having to run the business, having to be the puppeteer of everything. And I started getting sick. I started having these secular fevers. Like, every 90 days, I would have a 103 fever. And I'd be down for a week. And then rinse and repeat 90 days later, rinse and repeat 90 days later. And the physical, like, I felt like my body was... Just falling apart. I went from doctor to doctor to doctor, and oh, we can't figure it out. We can't, you know, let's do X, Y, Z. And finally, I ended up at a gastrologist who's like, "Oh, you don't have a a colon because the ER said had a colon issue. You don't have a colon issue. You have a muscular disorder." And he used very choice words. I love this doctor because he cusses like a sailor, and he's like. Who's your neurologist? And I told him who my neurologist was, and he goes, "Okay, if you don't have an appointment by by nine a.m. tomorrow, give me a call because you need it. You're too weak. There's no reason. You're 36 years old. There's no reason for this to be happening to you." Fast forward, I'm at the neurologist. He's like, "Why didn't you tell me these issues?" Fast forward, and I'm like, "Well, I'm going from doctor to doctor. Nobody's finding it." Um, end up having a muscle biopsy in that. They found a rare, there was a disorder there. They couldn't figure it out in a Mayo Clinic. ten. I have a muscular disorder that 10 people in the whole wide world have. Yay me. I won the lottery. <laughs> it does not have a name. It's, it's like a gene, and it has all these letters and numbers attached to it. So the physical part of it, if I kept on doing what I was going to do, I was going to be dead at 64. So I made a decision and right before mom passed away, I asked her, is it okay for me to sell the business? Would dad be okay with me selling the business? And then I also asked his best friend and they both without hesitation said he would absolutely support you in this decision and selling the business. And so I started the process and that was in 2017. I realized in 2017 though, that although I wanted to sell the business, I wasn't ready to, it's, it's emotionally wasn't ready. I didn't have my finances in place. I had, I mean, they were all good. It looked good on paper, but there are certain things you have to do to get your business for, ready for sale. So I spent the next three years tightening up, making sure that all, everything was in writing, making sure procedures were in writing because a lot of it was in my head. So I need to put it so it's a sellable business. So I worked hard for three years retraining my step, staff, staff Letting them know that I am not the, the be-all, end-all. You know the answer. You know what Catherine would do. You know what the next step is. Only call me if there is no solution. I'd rather you fail ethically and make a decision than not make a decision at all. So I've trained everybody in doing that. And then we put the business up for sale, and um, it, we had a successful sale. And in that, I, I took two weeks of um, retirement and, and decided, oh, this is boring. And I went back to Texas State University, and I received my certification in life coaching. And that's where I am today, helping businesses be better than where I was. I don't want anybody to ever feel alone in a business, to cry in the shower, to cry on their way home. I want them to know that it can be better and that there are solutions in running your business. It doesn't mean selling your business, because I did sell my business for a long time. I ran that business, and was able to take off for a full month. Every July, we went to Europe. My husband, me, and my son. We like left the, we left the country. Up to that time of me changing things, we hadn't had a vacation in 10 years. Change can't happen.
0: So as we come to the end of our interview here, there's a question that I ask everyone who comes on as a tie-in to the name of the podcast. And that question is, for you, what does it mean to be Texan?
1: What does it mean to be Texan? It means never giving up. Texans just have a way of persevering no matter what. Failure's not an option, right? In Texas, we can't fail. We want to do it, and nobody's going to tell us otherwise. That's what it means to be Texan.
0: Now, where can people find you? Is there a social media where they can find you or an email where they can reach out?
1: Yeah, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, just do Gen Biz Life Coach and either any of those three options I'm also on the web katherinealvarado.com and you can do a link there to set up a meeting and consultation and we'll get you going in September I am having a a complimentary group session that if you go on my website you can click on that and register for it just to kind of tease you a little bit about what we can do as a group and as a coach
0: well thank you so very much for chatting with me today I really appreciate your time thank you Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at Hannah Ortega ATX.